I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a current event or a media piece that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans in Kansas City, and today I'm joined by our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. Hello, Chuck. Welcome. Hey, Abby. Nice to talk to you. Did, did we miss last time? I, I, we did. I, did I screw that up? I think that I was out of town and didn't tell you, and then <laughs> you found out like 10 minutes before we were going to record or something. I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, no, that's okay because I don't know if it'll come through in the recording, but I'm actually getting over having a lost voice due to allergies. I've been diagnosed with allergies and it's very serious. And so last week on Friday, when it wasn't working out, I was like, well... I'm not really going to come through very well anyway. So it kind of worked out. So while I was down enjoying 14 hours a day for three days straight of dance, high school dance, you were suffering with a lack of a voice and allergies and stuffy head and all that stuff. It was horrible. I'm so disappointed about it, to be honest, because I never had this growing up. And now for some reason, I'm... I just am falling apart in the spring. I actually think I'm going to do one of those allergy panels where they like, yeah, yeah. test no, I've seen that. Yeah. and figure out what exactly you're allergic to. Uh, somebody at work was telling me about this, so I'm going to investigate it. I grew up on a farm and I never had allergies. I got my wisdom teeth out and I remember one of the little things said, you may experience uh, sensitivity to allergies and boy- what? Did I ever? Yeah. No. And I don't know. I mean, your wisdom teeth, when they're impacted, like, you know, brush up against your nasal cavity and they compress it, I guess, or whatever. But yeah, all of a sudden, ever since then, have had seasonal allergies. And the first few years were really bad, like very intense. You know, that might be correlation, not causation. So I'm not like a doctor. I don't know. But I know that I signed a waiver. And one of the things it said was that. And I just, I remember that because it was not long after that I had I never had allergies. I had a cousin who got them really bad and I would make fun of him. But I mean, I slept in a barn for fun in the summer. I mean, I hay, (laughs) straw, like never had allergies. It's a bit of an ego shock, right? Because I have this superiority (laughs) complex. (laughs) Just kidding. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to get older and there'll be more of these things. (laughs) I know. I'm only 48 and I'm like, oh my gosh, so that's never going to work right again. Oh no. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. See, there it is. There's my voice cracking. Okay. I'll try to get through this episode without my voice just completely falling apart. It is getting better, thankfully. Staying inside helps, but it's hard to stay inside this time of the year because I am an outdoor person. I like to be outside. So, And it's beautiful out. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Well, it's pretty hot right now, but it's unusually hot. Anyway, so... Today, we are actually covering a story that is actually a podcast. So it's published in the Next City podcast by Lucas Grinley, and it is entitled The First City to Launch Its Own Bank. So the City Council of Philadelphia has just approved of the creation of their first ever public banking entity. 
The vision here being that a public banking ecosystem would be established to include a municipal bank and um, a public financial authority that would work cooperatively to address systemic issues. This would provide banking services to hard-to-lend entities like affordable housing developers and business ventures that are either too small or too risky or lack the collateral to be served by um, traditional financial institutions. Uh, This would be able to lessen the deficit and access to credit for minority-owned businesses. This would enable private banks to share financial risk with a public bank that would encourage lenders to make loans they otherwise wouldn't be able to make. Um, And it would create ultimately more affordable access to capital with lower interest rates. So this is not necessarily a new idea. North Dakota has pioneered public banking. They have a state-run bank that takes all deposits, which I understand is the public tax dollars, and then leverages a portion of those funds for providing loans. And this was established back in the 1900s, where farmers were being charged really high interest rates from outside institutions in bigger cities. So they banded together to create a state-level public bank. So Philadelphia is also not the only place that is looking at this approach. Uh, There's movements in places like New York and California to enable and establish a public banking system. So I will admit that I listened to this podcast maybe three or four times because I am not an expert in finance and banking in general. And the concept, I think, is actually kind of complex. So this is either an amazing idea that would have transformative benefits for people or a horrible idea that is ripe for corruption and mismanagement. And I honestly Ooh. think the devil's in the details and <laughs> I'm regardless, I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And I have, I think more questions than answers. I was going to say it might be both. Abby. Yeah, it might be both depending on, on the public bank. Yeah. Let me just say, I love this idea. So I think this is a great idea. I do think that there are some things that could go horribly wrong and we should discuss those. But in general, I think this is a great idea. And not because I think that like public sector banking is a great is a great thing, but I, I want to start by having people recognize, especially people who I think would call themselves fiscal conservatives or limited government people and would have objections to this because of the government getting involved in something that the private sector is supposed to do. I want those people to step back and recognize that we have government banks today. They're called the Federal Reserve. They're called JP Morgan and they're called uh, Goldman Sachs and they're called, you know, US Bank. The Federal Reserve is a government-made entity essentially to support the banking system. And there's agreements with Congress back and forth about how revenue is created and shared and and where profits from that bank go and where deficits from that bank are covered. But you basically have a federally supported banking system that's supported by taxpayers. It is a public bank. Then you have these consolidated large banks, which I think in theory, you could say, well, they're publicly traded, they're private sector companies. But we have decided that they are systematically important. They are, to use the the 2008 vernacular, too big to fail. And so we have decided that they, as institutions, are worthy of public support and public backing. They're certainly publicly regulated, but as we've shown, when they get into trouble, we uh, go in 
and not only make sure that they can systematically continue to operate, but we make sure that they can make good on all their promises and obligations. So their, their key creditors get paid back. The risk that they take is very minimal in setting them up. Their key bondholders and shareholders get paid back. Um, we want to make sure that they don't take inordinate losses because we find these institutions to be fundamental to the running of the macro economy. I think that is all wrong. And I don't agree with any of that at all. But if we're talking about local governments and how cities run, that's the system that we have right now. And so the analog is, you know, we either play in that system or we create something different at the local level. And that's why this idea of local, you know, having a local bank or a city run bank or a community bank makes a ton of sense to me. It's a, it's, not the best solution, but it's probably the best solution for where we are right now. So I'm glad that you broke that down because when we first decided to do this article or, or cover this podcast, I actually sent it out to to my the group that I work with, our planning group and the firm, because every week I, I send the article to them just to see if anyone has any thoughts. And I work with a, a girl who's from Beijing, China. And she turned to me and said, wait, your banks are not public. And we actually spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how the banking system is actually structured in the United States, because I realized that I, I don't have that, basically that comprehensive of an understanding of how it currently works. And you know what, what we uncovered is that there are so many different types of banks that operate currently. And so trying to really understand the implications of how a public bank at this level would fit into kind of this overall ecosystem of CDFIs, of credit unions, and all of these other type, different types of institutions is pretty fascinating. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, because I think that there are so many implications of that. And I, the podcast really frames the benefits as more of a social justice approach. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what I want. <laughs> yeah, so providing capital in underserved populations and places. But I actually am wondering, would this framework actually service the city government itself by basically enabling the city to refinance its current public debt at a lower interest rate or provide itself low interest loans on for capital improvement projects and infrastructure projects. So that's one of the things that that this podcast didn't go into, but I was actually wondering how the city would actually like would it be able to benefit the 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 city government itself? Let's take that as a, a separate issue. Because I, I do think that that complicates things a lot. And I actually hadn't really thought about that very much. Because I was thinking, you know, along the lines of this podcast of how you would leverage a, a local bank to do public good, right? Um, as you brought up, there's a lot of nuances between credit unions and, and, and chartered banks and, and different things. We can't really get into that nuance. And I don't know if it's really important to this conversation. But I think what is important in this conversation is to recognize what a function a bank has at this level. A bank, we're dealing with this inflation problem right now, right? And there's all kinds of debate over what has caused the inflation and what, you know, how it results from. I personally think it's very clear that we have spent 
far more than a decade pumping money into the economy, basically creating money, which is what the Federal Reserve does, and shipping it to banks to, in a sense, trickle down into the economy. And and when the pandemic happened, we kind of shifted the flow of that and unleashed what a lot of people have said has just been pent up inflation. What banks do and the, the function that banks have is they actually create money. They create money into a system. So you put a dollar on deposit and a bank is able to, out of that dollar of deposit, create a number of dollars of money that they're able to loan into the system. So banks, it's really important to recognize, actually create money. We we sometimes talk about the Federal Reserve creating money and printing money. They're creating what is called base capital, but banks actually create the vast majority of the capital in the system. And they do this by loaning that money into existence. And so what a city-run bank has the capacity to do is to create money at the local level that would be deployed ostensibly into local projects. I think that it takes the power, because the power to create money is an enormous, enormous power. It's a, it's, it's a power that you can, can get out of control quite quickly. That's why we regulate banks so heavily. It's a power that can be abused and misused. Um, but it's a power right now that is licensed largely for large corporations, for big players in the system. When we get to the government level, it's largely power that is licensed for large projects and big undertakings. And what is sidelined in this, or what is what is kind of shunned to the, the, the periphery, are all the small players, all the, the, the small little things that need to be done, all the small projects and small undertakings. If those are not competitive in a marketplace, a private marketplace, or, or however you would define our banking system. I don't think it's a private marketplace, but the regulated marketplace we have now. If, if those things are not happening in that marketplace today because there's so much money to be had on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's so much work and effort that would need to go into to creating those things happen when the money's so easy on the other side. To me, there needs to be an, an alternative. There needs to be a locally based, locally sourced, locally directed kind of entity that would do that. The credit unions are not that. The local banks are, are, are not that. Um, they're tied into this macro system. And truly, a government-run local bank would be able to operate at that scale, collect deposits from either the government puts it on file, on, on deposit as tax receipts come in, or... Residents living in a community could uh, create those deposits themselves. I'm going to invest in a local bank. And then this bank could make local investments, investments that you know loan out money to people within the community with the idea of having those loans repaid with interest and making a profit on that that would then benefit the community. Uh, that, that is a, a very enticing idea because of the number of projects that are urgent, are very profitable, and are sidelined today because of the kind of very top-down nature of our capital markets. Yeah. And what this article brings up is that it's not like you would only use a public bank or you would only use a private bank. It seems like these actually can work together that you could be working with a private financial institution if you were, say, a small-scale developer trying to do a project, and you could actually have a combination of loans from both 
that would help to mitigate the risk of the the private institution. And so the local or the the public bank could basically step in as as a way of providing like gap financing or something like that. And this is what freaks me out and this is what I this is what I don't like about this. So one of the ideas here is that and and they said it right in this podcast the the the, the guy from Philadelphia he's like this will allow us to make riskier loans. Um if you step back today and look at our system, our financial system, our 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 economy, I'm just going to say this. There is nobody who has problem getting a loan today. You could say, well, oh, Chuck, no, no, I, I can't get it. No, no, really, people can access to capital is at an all-time high. One of the reasons we're suffering under inflation right now is because there's so much capital. There's so much investment money out there. Not only through credit cards and other like, you know, over-the-counter kind of loans, but just a massive amounts of liquidity in the system. Now, you might not be able to get money to do your project. You might have to have a project that is scaled to a certain size or certain place or a certain entity, but no local government, no, you know, player is having a difficult time accessing capital. It freaks me out when a locally run bank like this would in a sense say we are willing to do stupid things with taxpayer money for social reasons or for other reasons other than to you know run a strong bank run a good healthy bank on behalf of the public a good healthy bank on the back of the pub, on behalf of the public is going to fund projects that are not funded in the current system but the reason they're not funded is not because you know they're bad projects the reason they're not being funded is because the, the just the cost reward ratio of doing them is not there think about this abby if i can if i can issue a million dollars of loan a day and have very little risk and just do that over and over again why am i going to go through all the extra effort to do a $20,000 loan or a $50,000 loan that has a slightly higher risk and is going to take a lot more time and energy and, and effort to get done i'm just going to do the easy loan day and day and day and day and and that's why our banks have functioned like you know utility branches of this larger system what we're really talking about here is a different type of loan and i think when we when we say things like, we will give the private sector bank the guaranteed, and then we will take the second, or we will take the fringe loan, or we will go out and do loans that are really risky because you know we're a public bank, you're, you're almost getting into that realm where I see utilities doing all the time as well. When we look at the private electric company, do we expect the private electric company to lose money? No, we don't. We expect them to make money. We expect them to run their systems well. And we give them certainly monopoly power to go with a, an amount of regulation because we want them to be well run. We want them to be profitable because that profit benefits the overall system. But when we go over to like the public utility that runs our water system, for some reason, we expect the rates to be low and, you know, cut your costs way down. And we tolerate these systems being insolvent, being poorly run, and, and having bad incentives and bad decisions because somehow they are a public good. They're a public entity, and therefore, we shouldn't have to worry about these other things. I think that we do a disservice with our public utilities when we treat them that way. And my fear with a public bank would be if we treat it like it's an arm of 
the social welfare program as opposed to an arm of our like core development strategy. There can be some overlap there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm fully embracing that. But when the emphasis is on this is a social development tool, we're going to make a ton of bad loans. The bank is going to become insolvent. It's going to become a millstone around the community's neck. And it's going to actually rob wealth and capacity from people when it should be creating it. If you come to me and say, Chuck, I want to, I want to borrow from you $10,000 for an investment, and it's a bad investment, I am actually doing you a disservice by giving you that $10,000. If you come to me and say, I've got this investment and it's a good investment and I just need $10,000 to make it work and I don't have it, and I give you that money, I'm doing something beautiful for you by loaning you that money. If banks make bad loans for bad projects because they have big hearts and they care and, and they want to meet a social justice objective or, or what, you know, the litany of things that they talked about in that podcast as being like social goods. What they are actually do is harming people. And I, 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 I don't feel like they actually recognize that part of it. And that's a big danger to me. Yeah, I think the, the important thing here is to find that balance between uh, basically meeting those social or civic goals that, that the public bank has set out to meet and staying solvent. Because the difference here is that a public entity doesn't have skin in the game the way a private entity does. So how do you keep that public institution accountable and solvent over time? Because the worst thing would be to ha formerly have a public bank because it didn't work out. Ideally, you would want a public bank to be really well run and well managed because the real benefit there is that if there is a high return on equity, it would be able to take those profits and reallocate them in a way that would enhance those civic or social in intentions and goals that, that they're setting out to meet. And so that's the balance here is trying to, it's basically having the right people and the right set of objectives and systems in place to make sure it's being well run. Because as as we talk about quite often, and as Strong Towns talks about, uh, cities are are not currently solvent because of their development patterns. They have more liabilities than they do, if you want to call it profits or assets. And and so if you're going to turn around and, and take a portion of the city budget and turn it into a bank, a financial institution, I think that there is a lot of benefit that can come out of that, but it's going to be very important that it's being really well managed so that it can actually be a, a public good for a long amount of time. Right. Let me give two crystal examples for people to think about uh, where I think a, a, a local bank, a city bank could, could do, not, not city bank, but a, a local government bank could, could really do well. There is banks that will not fund certain commercial businesses unless they have enough parking. Uh, there are checklists on the secondary market where if you want to build uh, a certain type of commercial undertaking, a restaurant, you have to be able to, as part of that process, uh, signify that you have enough parking for your business. And that will go into a checklist because the bank that makes that loan will then sell the loan as a pre-qualified commercial product onto a secondary market. It will be securitized and split up. That's the way our system works. And so when a bank is processing one of those loans, it will say, well, I'm sorry, I can't make this loan to you because you don't have enough parking. 
That is something that a local government bank, a public bank at the local level could say, we recognize the market conditions here. That's a stupid market condition. We're not going to have that. We're going to make this loan without that. And they can circumvent this you know, system and, and, and get public good done while at the same time getting this business going. I think the same thing can happen with a small house. Uh, you know, a, a, a starter home that is 600 square feet is a really nice starter home. And that's a great house. Try going to the local bank and getting a mortgage for a 600 square foot house. They're going to say, no, there's no secondary market for that. We're going to wind up holding it on our books. We can't sell that off. It's not going to work. And so we can't do it. A, a, a public bank at the local level can do this and could do it very, very well and very easily. And, and let's say very profitably. Both of those things can help people in the community and also help the community. To me, what a bad loan is, is someone comes to us with a loan to do something that they're not going to be able to pay back or that is very, very risky. And we decide because they fit some social category we're trying to advance or some uh, objective in some council member's district that we're trying to do or they're friends with the mayor or what have you, that now the public bank is going to do that loan. That's where the corruption comes in. And that's where we actually shift lending to being something that now preys on people and leaves people worse off. If we just want to talk social justice, I wrote this thing about your city, about Kansas City, and about it was my article on reparations and what I thought Kansas City could do. And a lot of it could be accomplished by a local bank. And a, a lot of it involved going into neighborhoods that had been redlined, uh, where people had uh, places they wanted to make investments and making investments that were scaled to the neighborhood. This means smaller projects, projects that can help people get on their feet, projects that scale to where people are. Because if you can afford $1,000 a month for rent, you might not be able to qualify for a mortgage, but you could get into a house that's a small house and start building equity and start building capacity. A local bank, a, a, a public local bank could do that kind of a loan and actually advance that in neighborhoods. So I feel like there's a way to meet everybody's objectives here. But I was a little bit, there were some red flags to me in terms of the way they were talking about, like, here's our intentions. To me, the intention is let's actually run a bank that serves our community, does it well, and empowers the people here. Yeah. That's what a great bank should do. Yeah. I hope that at some point in the future, you know, this could be covered in the Strong Towns podcast with somebody who maybe has a background on this because it seems like there's a lot of places that are seriously looking into this. And I wouldn't be surprised if it gains in popularity over the next few years. Yeah, I can see why they are because, you know, as soon as you sent me this article, I'm like, oh yeah, that's really smart. There's a yeah. big, there's a big void here to be filled. And I think, you know, cities could, cities could really fill that void in a powerful way. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. But before we finish today, uh, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we've been listening to, watching, reading, anything that has been taking up our time these days. So Chuck, what have you been up to? I was hesitating on sharing this book because I'm like, okay, now people are going to start to think I'm crazy. Because I, I shared this book last week about... Um, uh, the mind and consciousness and, and what disordered minds tell us about the way the mind works. That was a fascinating book. I, I'm, I'm on to this book called Biocentrism. 
It's uh, how life and consciousness are the keys to understanding the true nature of the universe. It's by a, a guy named Robert Lanza. And I've actually been building up to this book. There's three that he's written, and I'm this is the first one of the three. I will summarize it by saying, we look at us, you and me sitting here today, as being the byproduct of many, many years of physical evolution of the universe. So the Big Bang, formation of stars, formation of planets, proteins, single cells, uh, working up to vertebrates, working up to mammals, working up to us, and now you and I are sitting here as slightly evolved chimpanzees having a conversation. That's the way that the universe, and so we are the byproduct, something has created us. And this book says, no, when we study quantum theory and we recognize in, in the quantum world and quantum mechanics that everything exists in a probability, the thing that brings something into existence is our observation of it. And so it takes basically the creation story or the creation of like why you and I are here. You and I are here because we have consciousness to recognize we're here and our consciousness has actually created the reality that we perceive. It's a very like mind-bending way. It feels a little matrixy, but it's actually very science-based um, way of looking at the universe. And I'm, I'm finding it utterly fascinating. I can't stop listening to it. And I'm like, uh, when work is done, I'm going to go for a long walk and listen some more. That's really, really fascinating. So does that mean if no one listens to UpZone, it doesn't exist? It doesn't exist. No, <laughs> it, it, it does mean that if a tree falls in the forest and there is no living entity there, plant uh, or human, to hear it, it, it doesn't make a sound because it exists in probability. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's interesting yeah. to think about. Well, um, you know, I actually, so you're going to like this. I've actually been revisiting the Strong Towns book this oh. week. Yeah, yeah, listening to it on audio. Um, and I'm actually traveling to Texas today and flying down there. And I'm planning to listen to it on the plane. I'm pretty <laughs> excited to wow. to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a while since I since I've read it. And I've read it a couple of times, but yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it, and sometimes I just like to go and re revisit the books that I have on uh, my audio. Thank you. I, I you know it's kind of funny because it's only been there'll be three years in October since it came out, so not even three yeah, years. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, we're working on the third book right now. We signed a contract, and it's um, it's in progress. I actually have thought about the day when it gets like 10 year anniversary and I can rewrite some of the things because I feel like, um, you know, anytime you do something like that, it's a snapshot of your thoughts in, in time. And I always feel like, oh, I wish I could, I wish I could add this, or I wish I could change this, or I wish I could uh, expand on this. So I'm That must be the challenge of writing a book is that you're putting it, you're putting it in stone for a period of time. It's a challenge of any, I, I recognize this, it's a challenge of any creative pursuit, which is you, you have to let go of it at some point and, and live with the consequences. I have uh, appeased myself with that by saying, okay, there'll be a 10-year ten, anniversary someday and I can update it. Jeff Speck is updating uh, Walkable City for a 10-year anniversary. And I've kind of been inspired by that because I'm like, okay, I don't have to fret over all these little things I want to change. I can just say someday... 
I will. Yes. <laughs> I will go can... through and, and, and make this a, a different, you know, slightly different thing, but it's actually yes. held up pretty well. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I think it's held up really well. <laughs> yeah. I think it's held up really well in these three years with, with COVID happening and, <laughs> you know, the world has changed so much and it still holds up. So bravo. I did an interview today where they, I did a podcast interview today where they asked a bunch of questions about the book. And yeah, it's, it's fun because, I mean, it still is selling really, really well. It's fun because there's a lot of people who are, I mean, just now, there's a lot of people who will be listening to you and me on UpZone who have never heard of Strong Towns before. And this is their first episode ever. And they're like, what is this? And it's, it's kind of a gift to me to think that there's people out there who are getting this for the first time and going, wow, okay, amazing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy. It is an amazing book. I really, <laughs> I really think so. You know, ten years from now, you will have finished your all of your books that you plan to write in your series, and you'll be able to revisit the first one. I'll be that old guy who is like back in the day when we and. <laughs> 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 right, exactly. Uh, I know. All right. I know. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. And Have thanks, nice everybody. Trip. Thank you very much. See you next fall. <laughs> well, th- <laughs> so, well, thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. 